Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 321, recorded October 5th, 2011, The Beauty of Beast. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express. GoToAssist Express by Citrix puts IT professionals in position to do what they do best, access, diagnose, and resolve. Try it free for 30 days. Visit GoToAssist.com slash security now. And by Carbonite. Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic and unlimited backup for your computer files with anytime, anywhere access. For a free trial, plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects yourself and your loved ones and the Bank of America online. <laughs> Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show from GRC.com, the creator of SpinRight, the world's best hard drive and maintenance and recovery utility, but also a lot of security utilities. And a man who's really made it his uh, mission in life to uh, study security, Steve Gibson. Sometimes we scare our listeners, but that helps to keep them on their toes. Sometimes and they need to be scared. I do think, uh, yes, I think in general, if we can um, show people the the actual consequences of clicking on links in email, yeah. then they are less likely to succumb to that ever-present temptation to do so. Well, we do more than that, so, of course. Yeah, of course we do. We got a great uh, show today. We've talked about something that has been much in the news recently. A couple of, of fun security researchers managed to turn a decade-old theoretical problem in secure connections, so, you know, as we know, that's SSL and TLS, into a working exploit. Oh. So the news went all over the place. They, they presented at Black Hat and also at a, at a conference more, more thoroughly uh, in Buenos Aires recently. And, and, and I promised our listeners I w- we would like really dig into this. Well, when I did... I thought, okay, uh, maybe the excruciating details would be <laughs> apropos to a graduate course in cryptography, not so much an audio podcast. <laughs> it's that bad. <laughs> oh, my God. But what I found was actually something even better, which is um, one of the guys' write-up of the process they went through. And so... That's mostly what I want to share. I'm, we'll, we'll talk about what it is they did in enough detail that nobody will come away unsatisfied. I, that I can guarantee you because I understand how they did this. And it's like, okay, how do I ever explain that? But what's cooler is, is their chronology of the development of this because that, of course, in its nature applies not only to this particular instance, but this is in general 
how these things happen. And I think that gives us a really interesting, and then that's something we've never had before, a really interesting look into the development of an exploit from the first little itch that something might be possible. Hmm. Yeah, it's going to be great. All right, we're going to get to that in just a second. We also have security updates and news and uh, yep. some programming, a programming note. Uh, yes. Next week, uh, you, you may be on a jury yourself, I understand. <laughs> well, I'm on call. I start phoning in Friday evening of this week, and you know, they'll, the good news yeah. is the court yeah. is close by. And this is, I guess, what you went through about a month ago, right? I did, yeah. I got on the jury, which I was Yeah, and I, I've, never been imp- I've never been impaneled before, but I, mean, I guess... You know, and it's funny too, because who was I? Oh, I know. I'm. I'm gonna. I've got a an NPR spot set up for next week, and the the producer of that, when I was explaining that, well, I I hope I'll be available, but I'm not sure that I will be. He said, "Well, just show up in your security officer uniform from Star Trek, <laughs> and you know that might put them off." And I thought, <laughs> yeah, I'll probably just piss off the judge because yeah, the I judge don't think knows. they take that very no. with much humor any longer. People don't like it when you try to skate. Uh, exactly. And you know what? It's kind of fun being on a jury. So if you're on a jury, so be it. But we'll figure oh, it out. Absolutely. I, uh, yep. I had a, a friend who said, just don't send back the form and they'll, they'll like forget about you, even though it says you, they can be, you can be hauled off to prison. And I thought, well, hey, you know, I vote and, and I've seen some juries and boy, they could use some help. So I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Good for you. You're a good civic minded person. Oh, and I did uh, exchange some email. Um, already uh with your staff and um i'm sure we can arrange to record security now even we'll like out. in the la- in the late afternoon or early evening uh i'm i think that that tom uh would be available for doing that so well, that'd be great and also the courts in california take one weekday off a week so you'll have a day that you could do this even if you get on a jury so we'll figure Perfect. that out we'll make we'll make it work i am taking next week off for five just the five days this is the, the monday through friday so uh, it will try be to tom even Merritt. out your tan yeah well, now, I, yeah, I was just saying how blotchy I got from getting some sun the other day. I'm thinking uh, old age has struck. I need that, what is that they call porcelana age cream? You know, this smooths out the age spots. But anyway, enough so is that. Tom. So is Tom going to be covering all of, the, all of the shows? No, no, no. We have many people ah. now. Iaz will be doing this week in Google. Uh, we have a, a Mac break will be Alex Lindsay. No, we, we're pretty well covered now. We've got hosts. Cool. Hosts galore. We're going to uh, well, get to, oh, go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> I was just going to say, Tom and I will have fun with a Q&A, as we always do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what's next week, by the way. You can leave your questions for Steve at grc.com slash feedback. Uh, we will get to, in just a bit, our first security update and uh, what's going on with B of A. Because uh, Steve was on uh, ABC Nightly News last night. I'm going to ask him about that, talking about that B of A story. But first, let's talk about our friends at Citrix and my good, good product for... Uh, Folks who do support, go to assist.com. We for, I first met the folks at GoToAssist when they were a company called Expert City, ooh, some moons ago. We used Expert City on the screensavers and really loved it. Citrix acquired them, really enhanced it, and now GoToAssist Express, the latest version, is the support tool. If you are in IT support, software support, uh, training, this is an amazing solution. You can access, diagnose, and resolve issues fast. And that's one thing both IT pros and their clients want. Clients, you know, they just want you to fix it. <laughs> and they want it done right. And that's why you need to do it. And uh, you need to do it even if you're not right next to them. 
across the city, across town, or across the country or around the world. You can use GoToAssist Express from Citrix to remotely access, diagnose, and resolve the problem. It's fast. Your client doesn't have to have it installed. All you have to do is send them a link and boom, boom, booyah. They're all of a sudden, they're, they're, you're in there and you're fixing the problem. Not just theirs. You could do eight sessions at the same time, which means you start an install on one, a scan on another, and you keep moving on. You don't have to wait around. You can find out what software is running, not just the operating system, what security software, what exact version, that kind of thing. And they have unattended, unattended support. So once you've got it installed on your client's machine, you don't have to wait till they're there. Uh, they can give you permission to access at any time. Go to Assist Express uses 128-bit SSL, so it's always secure. Here's what you do. You go to gotoassist.com slash security now and try it free for 30 days, Mac or PC. You can work on a Mac from a PC. You can work on a PC from a Mac and vice versa. Go to assist.com. It'll be two minutes. You'll be ready to go. And, and by the way, it's so easy for your clients. That's important, too. You don't want to be supporting the support tool. Go to assist.com. Slash security now. Please give it a try. And we do thank them for their support of the security now program. All right, Steve Gibson. We have, uh, I think, so, a few security so, updates. Yeah, we do. Well, actually, one that's almost, well, everyone thought it was, well, okay, nobody thought it was funny. Um, I was thinking maybe everyone, but Google, um, <laughs> as some of our listeners certainly know, uh, because I got a lot of tweets about this. An update last week, since we've last spoken to our audience, of Microsoft's security essentials mistook Google's Chrome browser, <clears throat> Google's competitive Chrome browser, as the notorious Zeus botnet Trojan and removed it from Apparently, Microsoft's instrumentation says about 3,000 customers. So, oddly, not a huge number of customers, but a bunch. So, Microsoft posted on the 30th, they said an incorrect detection of this botnet was identified. And as a result, Google Chrome was inadvertently blocked and in some cases removed from customers' PCs. We've already fixed the issue. We released an updated signature at, actually it was a few hours later at 9.57 a.m. Pacific time, but approximately 3,000 customers were impacted. Oh, so that's, that's why. It's probably because it they, they caught it, it was reported, and they caught it, and they fixed it so quickly that they were able to, to fix this before it made you know, more problems. Yeah, but you kind of wonder, fact, how many people are using Microsoft Security Essentials if it only affected 3,000 people? Yeah. Aren't, I mean, what? Probably it's that it was... That, it, you know, not all systems are, are checking all the time and downloading it constantly. So it's being staggered out over time and they got it fixed before it got out to many of the of the Windows users. Yeah. And they said, uh, so affected customers should manually update Microsoft Security Essentials to the latest signatures. To do this, simply launch MSE, go to the Update tab and click the Update button and then reinstall Google Chrome. Now, it turns out it wasn't quite that easy because some users were trying to do that who had had their Chrome.exe executable deleted. And it wasn't until they went into add remove programs and manually removed all of the other components of Chrome that then an updated Chrome with their updated MSE signatures was able to install. So 
this is the first time, I'm, you know, false positives happen from time to time. We've talked about it. I've had random AV suites every couple years will declare one of my exes that's been sitting around on my server untouched for five years. It's like, oh, suddenly it's infected. It's like, no, no, you know, it's not. Just update your patterns, you know, report it to the vendor and let them fix their stuff. So this sort of happens. The problem is you can't. Microsoft can't, for example, make an exception for files named Chrome.exe, or if they did, bad guys would start naming their malware Chrome.exe, knowing that MSE would skip over it. So this is a inherently an error-prone process. They have to do things heuristically. They can't simply make a fingerprint, you know, like a cryptographic fingerprint, to to check to see if if something is a known piece of malware, because now the malware is all polymorphic and changing itself from instance to instance and from infection to infection on Explain the fly. what that means, polymorphic. That's a that's a good term. Yeah, it, it essentially means that that the the malware is deliberately working to make it difficult for it to be recognized. It's it's built from many different small pieces and it'll dynamically rearrange them so that the same code is not in the same location or it's, there are even some algorithms that will, will on the fly rewrite themselves in different ways to achieve the same end. So it's truly different code on a per instance basis. The, you know, the, we know that computers are powerful, software is powerful, and often the bad guys are spending an awful lot of, of their own mental cycles trying to figure out how to get around being caught by antivirus. And so this is the, the sort of the escalation of the cat and mouse has been the, the evolution of malware so that in, individual instances are actually different files. They do the same thing. They're technically the same malware, but they don't even look like the same program. That's amazing. That's so, so sophisticated. It's like the rhinovirus of malware. Yeah, exactly. It's mutating. And so, you can, so, so, so consequently, that means that the AV guys have to actually do behavior analysis. They have to look at what this thing does, what things it hooks, because they can no longer look at what it looks like statically, they have, they've now been reduced to watching its behavior dynamically and see if it's behaving in a way that seems suspicious. And, and so you can imagine programs that, that want to do the same sorts of things with a system for benign reasons sometimes get caught. Like my code, um, the, the very popular tool I have that allows people to, to see what capabilities their processor has, which has been used because people have want, been wanting to see which levels of, of virtualization they have, um, uh, that got called malware for a while until people complained and, and the, the AV people fixed it. And the reason was I was looking at the same sorts of things that malware needs to look at to decide how it should act. And so, so you know, immature AV system said, uh, this might be a bad thing. It's like, no, I'm, I'm on your side. So it is, uh, it's tricky. Well, I'm glad they um, figured it out. Yeah, but, but yeah, false positives are a real problem, but... Uh... They're not going to go away either. It's no, just, and I, I don't know if heuristics are enough. You know, that's the, the proactive kind of looking at bad activity. The only ultimate solution 
is just not feasible in, with our, within our current ecosystem. And that is to have all applications signed, you know, cryptographically signed and only run the things that are signed. We talked about this in a similar vein last week when we talked about secure boot, where every single component of the system that would be booted would have its signature cryptographically verified prior to it executing. And the immediate hue and cry went up. It's like, wait a minute, you're anti-Linux because, you know, Linux is open source and we want everyone to be able to submit code and blah, blah, blah. So, so, so the idea there is you would deny all execution unless it was proven to be a known and trusted publisher. So that flips the model upside down and we you know there's just no way that's going to fly cuz you know people uh, who make freeware who aren't able to pay for and maintain certificates um, w- would just not be able to have their software run. So I mean without all kinds of warning dialogues and then you get you train users just to click yes 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 and then you've lost all your protection. So you know this is a problem that we don't have a good solution for. The other big news was a huge problem that was uncovered in HTC handsets. Um, What happened was HTC added a raft of logging technology relatively recently to to a large number of their handsets. Essentially, they were rolling it out across their line. The EVO 4G, the EVO 3D, the Thunderbolt, the EVO Shift 4G, probably the MyTouch 4G slide, the Vigor, the View 4G, and probably the upcoming Kingdom. So, um, oh, and, and and those are, I guess, HTC Sensation models that, that were affected. So the discoverers of this notified HTC doing the right thing, received no response. HTC just apparently blew them off. So they thought, fine, we'll go public. So, of course, HTC has now responded and, in fact, acknowledged um, with a, a, a blog posting that said a privilege escalation vulnerability allows a potentially malicious app that uses only the Internet permission token to connect to HTC's HTC loggers service and get access to data far exceeding its access rights. This data includes call history, the list of user accounts, including email addresses, SMS data, system logs, GPS location data, and more. So the guys that found it were the Android police group, and they said in recent updates to some of its devices, HTC introduces a suite of logging tools that collects information, lots of information, lots. Whatever the reason was, whether for better understanding problems on users' devices, easier remote access, corporate evilness, it doesn't matter. If you, as a company, plant these information collectors on a device, you better be damn sure the information they collect is secured and only available to privileged services or after the user or or the user after opting in that is not the case 
What Trevor found is only the tip of the iceberg. We're still digging deeper. But currently, any app on affected devices that requests a single android.permission.internet, which is normal for any app that connects to the web or shows ads, can get its hands on the list of user accounts, including email addresses and sync status for each, the last known network and GPS locations, and a limited previous history of locations, phone numbers from the phone log, SMS data, including phone numbers and encoded texts, and they wrote, not sure yet if it's possible to decode, but very likely, and system logs, both kernel level and app level, which includes everything your running apps do and is likely to include email addresses, phone numbers, and other private info. And so they said normally applications get access to only what is allowed by the permissions they explicitly request and the user explicitly um, allows. So when you install a simple, innocent-looking new game from the market that only asks for the Internet permission, for example, to submit scores online, you don't expect it to be able to read your phone log or your list of emails. So that's the, the story behind that. Um, it's, you know, so essentially, the obviously, the model that we have in our phones is one where, and we've talked about this in more detail in the past about the uh, Apple's model with the iPhone, where you do have careful inter-application sandboxing, where each app is is only able to see those services and those portions of the essentially a shared file system that that you explicitly give the app to. This has been a, a, a source of some chafing for iPhone users because it does certainly restrict the kinds of things the app is able to do. People who would who wish their smartphone was more like a computer where they could freely browse through the, the, the phone's file system, drag and drop files around, download with one app and, and transfer it over into another. You know, those features don't exist specifically for the sake of security. You know, it's, it's those features that do make our PCs much more susceptible to exploitation. So we don't have that in our smartphones. And what, what was found, of course, was that th- this logging system really did not have sufficient security. So HTC is uh, probably, I expect, in the future will be a little more responsive to to people who find and report problems. Well, they, they only were... gave them five days. I guess that's normal, though. Well, well, I, I, well, they gave them five days after no response. Ah. I mean, they didn't. It's, it wasn't five days to fix it. It was. It was. They silence. said they, they they didn't hear anything for five days. Right? Not even Correct. a oh, let's we're looking into it kind of a. Thing. Not even an acknowledgement. Yeah. You know, let's work together. Show us your data, kind of thing. Just nothing. Right. You know, so, there was a security flaw with the Samsung Galaxy uh, S two on AT and T that was kind of silly. If you have a screen lock on it and you turn this phone on and just let it sit for a second till it turned itself back off again and then turn it on there was no screen lock at all <laughs> so they have to fix that too both HTC and Samsung have patches to do that was only on the AT&T platform by the way right um, there's you know there's a little sloppiness going on here and i think these handsets are just going to be so ripe for attacks oh, they better start Leo. paying attention yep absolutely 
So Brian Krebs, our our friend who watches security things uh, very closely, uh, blogged an interesting post that had a couple lessons that I wanted to refresh our listeners about. Um, what, what he blogged was that uh, uh, the the title was "Monster Spam Campaigns Lead to Cyber Heists," and a little excerpt from it said that fishers and cyber thieves have been casting an unusually wide net lately, blasting out huge volumes of fraudulent email designed to spread password-stealing banking Trojans. Judging from the number of victims who reported costly cyber heists in just the past two weeks, many small to medium-sized organizations took the bait. Now, interestingly, I deliberately maintain some... some um, uh, honeypot email accounts. And I have noticed a huge volume of subject lines ACH payment canceled notices. Hmm. And that's the, that's the subject which, in fact, I just got two this morning um, in, in one of those accounts. Um, so, for example, just in three instances, recent known attacks um, within the last two weeks on September 13th, Computer crooks stole approximately $120,000 from oncology services of North Alabama. Also, in late September, $98,000 was stolen from the coffers of North Putnam Community School Corporation, which serves the children of six northern townships of Putnam County, Indiana. And in a separate attack on a public institution, malicious hackers last month struck the city of Oakdale, California, stealing $118,000 from a city bank account. So these are large bank transfers. And what, and what happens is the money is – so you, you click on one of these malicious emails. It installs a, a Trojan horse in your machine, which is designed to watch you log in – to your electronic banking, it hijacks your credentials, uses them to then transfer funds to so-called mules, which are which are anonymous individuals that have been recruited, third-party individuals recruited by these organizations to receive the money and and immediately cash the money out of their accounts and then forward a portion of it. They get to keep a commission, essentially, and forward the bulk of the, the, the rest of it on to the actual perpetrators of this. So this is all going on. Um, and Brian concludes his posting with exactly the, the advice I have often stated. He said, no single approach or technology will stop all of these account takeovers. But preventing the theft of your online banking credentials is a critical first step. Yeah, no kidding. He says, that's why I continue to advise that small to mid-sized organizations use a dedicated computer for online banking, which is what we've talked about several times, using a non-Windows PC such as Live CD or a Mac is the safest approach because this is these are Windows-based Trojans because they're trying to cast the widest net possible but not necessarily the most practical or affordable solution. An alternative approach is to access bank accounts from an isolated Windows PC that is locked down, 
regularly updated and used for no other purpose than online banking. So, and, and of course, what I'll just add to that is what I have done for myself is I've said to, to Sue, I know doing these things online would be a convenience, but we just can't. So our accounts are locked down. The, the accounts themselves deny all electronic funds transfers, these so-called ACH transfers, these clearinghouse transfers. And, and though it means that she has to physically go in, she's got to write checks from one account and deposit them in another, it, it's a pain. But boy, you know, we're talking of about hundreds of thousands of dollars that, that disappear. In some cases, there's insurance that will cover this. In some cases, some of the funds can be recaptured if, if, if this is discovered quickly enough. But, you know, you just don't want this exposure. So, you know, this is really happening. And I would imagine among our listeners that if I, if I talk about this ACH payment canceled email, I mean, I'm seeing so much of it. I, I am absolutely seeing what in, my, in my honeypot email accounts what Brian is talking about. There's been a huge escalation in only the last few weeks. And, of course, it's because these attacks are so successful. People just can't help themselves. They click on the link. Of course, if you're using Gmail, which I'm sure most of our uh, listeners use, I'm sure that it's uh, Gmail's catching them all and killing yes, them. Yes, it would have immediately come up to speed and yeah. said, whoops, this is spam. Put it in. Although, remember that RSA was hacked because someone went into their spam folder and clicked the link. Hmm. So it's even that. Bad idea. <laughs> Kids, don't go into your spam folder and then... Click links. That, that's a bad idea. So what is the uh, subject line? ACH canceled? Uh, ACH, I just scrolled past it. ACH payment canceled. Payment canceled. I'm just going to search in my uh, spam and so forth to see if I see it. So when you do a honey bucket, it's something that has no filtering. Yeah, so so it's uh, in, I'm looking at two emails. ACH01 is the from, the, the, the from address, and the subject line is ACH payment and then it's got a random number a random seven digit number to make it look more authentic and so that a subject line match won't uh, i found a couple and then it's huh i found a couple yeah huh escalation ray action required yep yeah hmm. yep in fact i've got one here on eight two and eight three i've got uh Two more on eight, two and eight. So that's just in the last couple of days. These are from Our, this is from July and from AP Associates. Uh, they're meant to look like an Amazon Associates account. And actually, what's changed? Um, and Brian talks about this. Is they're now coming from a different source? That apparently, I'm looking at. Okay, here's eight. I think three. I fell for this actually. It's nacha.org, dot org, uh-huh. which is a well-known nonprofit organization, and in fact. Um, I'm the one I'm looking at here has a, a dot .pdf dot .zip attached, and there's a different attack which is using a a subtle glitch in 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 um, URL rendering. There's a Unicode character that induces right to left reading, and so it's been used as a hack, a new way of covering up the fact that this is a actually a dot .zip, which is it's made to obscure that and make it look just like a dot .pdf. So, I mean, these guys are just doing everything they can. Now, I have to say, this is, I think, actually legitimate. ACH is Amazon Associate Payments. 
Uh, and the link in here is, you know, and I can see the actual link is uh, is associates.amazons.com. So it's not a bogus link or a hidden link. Uh, it's not an HTML email. And then you say there might be a PDF attached. Is that another vector of attack? Well, what I'm seeing is, yeah, in, I've got two of them. That, so what I'm saying show. is that the one you've got is a is an attempt to duplicate legitimate Amazon emails. Ah, okay. I would right. guess. And my, although mine it clearly comes from NA. C-H-A dot U-S. Yeah, this is from Amazon.com, although yeah, you could so, spoof and, and that. Brian, and Brian did talk about this as the source of these new yeah. emails. So okay. anyway, there just is a lot of this going on. Wow. So all of our listeners, don't click those, no matter where you find them. And, uh, and really do take the, the issue of protecting your online electronic funds transfer accessible accounts carefully because the bad guys want to get your money. Unfortunately. Yes, they do. Yeah, and they're clever. So last week, I completely forgot to talk about something from the prior week. And if it's not in my notes, because you know, I'm notes driven here during the podcast, I forget it. And so I just I forgot to write it down and I just cruised right past it. We talked two weeks ago about how BitCasa was doing file merging and how they were ma- how they were managing to offer truly unlimited file space under the explanation that that they were merging files from different users yet they were unable to decrypt it and i'm really impressed with our listeners because you know i on the spot cooked up a a complex means using public key encryption which would allow that that to be made true using a a random encryption key for the file which was then encrypted under the user's um under the user's private key and if bitcasa wanted somebody else to have access to it then they were able to pass that through using the other person's public key and so forth well, a bunch of listeners said, uh, Steve, and actually it occurred to me too by the time I saw it, but I got to give credit to all of our listeners who came up with a super elegant, much simpler solution, which is exactly what BitCasa, among other things, is doing. And you're going to love this, Leo. This is just okay. beautiful, beautiful crypto. Cool. They hash the file. Yeah. And that's the key. Okay. So, so think about it. If if you so they're using get, the plain text hash as the key. You, no, you well you 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 you're hashing the, the plain text. You, you yes, you you hash the plain text, and that gives you a a signature, mm-hmm. and you encrypt the file with that. <laughs> Clever. So so only if you have the file. You can only un- unencrypt if you have the plain text. Yes, and so. So the idea is just incredibly elegant. So all that you ever share with BitCasa is the, is the, well, okay, all all you ever share, all that is ever shared with BitCasa is an encrypted file. And the file is encrypted under or using the, that files, the unencrypted files hash. Right. So only somebody who legitimately has the identical file is ah. able to hash it and get the same key. 
Got it. And then you and then you could either do a different ha a different type of hash of the plain text or simply hash the encrypted file as as sort of as the token. So you so you a user you you hash the 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 unencrypted file to get the key. You encrypt the file with that the result of that hash with that key. Now you have the cipher text. Then you hash that to get a token which represents that file. Now the you hash is considerably shorter than the original file. Oh gosh, the hash remember it's going to be 256 bits. Right. It's going to be, you know, like like that's all it's going to be a fixed size digest of the entire file no matter how big the file is. So you run it across. Then, so let's say we both we all have the song I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. And I run that. That was the thought. That view, that's the song I <laughs> had. It? I mind. thought it might be. <laughs> And so then I and it, we're, I don't know what it is an MD5 hash. It's some common hash algorithm. And Let's so, hope that it's an SHA two fifty six. Yeah, MD5 would, was correct. We know that. Yeah. We would like to have it also produce a two fifty six bit key, which we then use AES two fifty six in order to encrypt. On top of so so we so take the back. plain file, the unencrypted song, we hash yep. it using SHA, and yep. we get a two hundred fifty six bit key. Exactly. Okay. And then now, uh, then we encrypt the file using that key and yep. upload it to BitCasa. Any well, well, actually, no? We, 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 no, because we don't want to be uploading files they already have. Well, they can say, oh, yeah, yeah, right. We, we, we push the so button we, to upload it, and BitCasa says, no problem. I already have that key. Yeah. So actually, we, we push the button to upload it, and the pushing the button hashes the encrypted file. Right. To produce a signature for it, that gets sent to Bitcasa, two fifty six bits. Just to check, they check. They say, yeah, they we check. got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. And they say you're covered. Now and this so, still would uh, be make you open. This all comes from this whole issue of how do you encrypt and uh, only keep one copy of a file, which yes, we were trying to I'm, figure out. Now this still exactly. makes you prone to the same problem that let's say I'm the MPAA. And I'm looking for people who have uh, Hurt Locker. Yes. And um, so I do the same so thing, and now I, can, I've, I have access to all the people who have Hurt Locker. And the lesson is this is not to avoid – I mean, this is not to enable piracy. Everyone – It doesn't make you anonymous. Precisely. It, well, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make it impossible to prove what files you have. If that's what you want, uh -huh. you've got to encrypt with a, your own private key, and and you know and pay some money to use the cloud. Right. You know you, this is free because it's unlimited because it is amalgamating all the files across all of their customers, which allows them to offer unlimited storage for free. Now, uh, frankly, Leo, what you could do is there's lots of metadata in the headers of audio files and video files. So you could change, you just change one, one bit. One bit, and it's different. Yes. And so, strange how this one guy doesn't <laughs> share any files in common right. with everyone else, yet we're still offering him unlimited file uploads. Well, that's stores. the problem. So, if everyone were to do that, it would break BitCasa's model. Exactly. Yeah. So and is this, I forgot how we, because, uh, okay, so this all came up because uh, BitCasa was a, uh, 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 I think one uh, TechCrunch Disrupt 
uh, or was one of the one of the no, yes. didn't win it, but it was one of the big names uh, that was uh, very excited. People were very excited about it, uh, and and they pur- purport, purport to offer unlimited cloud storage for I think it was ten bucks uh, or free or whatever. And, and, and we were trying to figure out how can and and they claimed that it would be private because they they support encryption. That they that they were unable to respond to a subpoena ah, to it. produce the file contents. Right, right. And so we quickly two weeks ago came up with with a hack that was you know overly complex. This is easier. But really, yeah. really, what I wanted to share with our listeners was just the elegance of you of hashing the file to produce its key. That you then use to encrypt it. That's just spectacular. Web eighty three forty nine asks about hash collisions. How um, often does that happen? Yeah, with, with an SHA two fifty six bit hash, and that's again another reason you want a lot of bits. You'd rather, you know, many hashes are secure with one hundred twenty eight bits. Two hundred fifty six bits. Oh my goodness! Even a birthday collision where you know two arbitrary files have a collision. It's just it's apt. It's well, and you could also keep the the size. So do the hash and the size, and the and the consequ- the possibility of a collision both in in hash and size is like astronomically low. Got it. But that's a great question. Yeah. So this is completely miscellaneous, but I just wanted to remind our listeners. I encountered somebody the other day who runs their Kindle battery to the ground. That is, they read and read and read and read, and actually, my mom does that too. But I do too. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to try to change her behavior. I do it too. I is it bad to do that? Very bad. Oh. Lithium ion batteries hate that. Um, I've done just in the last few months. I did a lot of research into care and maintenance of lithium ion uh, batteries for the whole portable sound blaster project, right. and I saw again uh, a lot of information that says. You read that's not the way to get the maximum lifetime out of lithium ion batteries. Now, it's one thing if the batteries are removable, but increasingly on our electronics devices, they're not. Kindle's batteries are not user serviceable. They used Mac to be. Air, they were in the first yep. one, not anymore. Yep. yep. Mac Air batteries are not. iPhone, iPod, and so forth batteries are not. So I just wanted to say to our listeners what lithium ion batteries want is. To stay charged. So, the, it, I mean, if you want to get the maximum lifetime out of them, just in the same way that phone, phones generally stay charged because they, they have such a short lifetime of use that people get into the habit of docking them, you know, at the end of every day, sometimes even at work, they'll, they'll plug them in to bring them back up. So, but something like the Kindle or like, you know, the Air and so forth, in general, if you can, plug them in. So just, again, hmm. pure miscellany, but uh, I, I just – every time I encounter people running their batteries to the, to the ground, I think, ooh, lithium-ion doesn't like that. See, it's the reason people do it is because that was the thing to do with nickel metal hydride. Exactly. You wanted NICATs. to fully dis- – and NICATs too. You want to fully discharge because of the memory effect. Exactly. And so that absolutely is the wrong it's the, procedure it's for lithium-ion. It's the opposite for lithium-ion. Just remember this, folks. So you're saying whenever you have the opportunity, plug it in. Yes, smartphone, you'll, 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 anything. Yep. This is Kindle, good. To know. You'll, you'll yeah. get much, much more lifetime if, if you keep those guys charged up. So you just don't want to happen. deplete them all the way, right? Is is that the issue? Is it letting it go all the way down? Well, it's just the, the the nature of the way at the molecular level that the chemistry works is the the chemistry of the battery is 
is happier <laughs> for lack of a deep electrochemical interesting. Uh, explanation if you if you keep it charged the, the, they like to be charged and in fact if there there's one thing that can happen is that um that the batteries of unused devices will drop below a threshold and then they say that they're dead that uh, it's like they can't it's be not recharged. even yeah. it cannot be recharged there is uh, there's actually some circuitry a, on every single cell that that prevents the cell from being overcharged that creates a tiny drain on the cell which is why if you don't use your device for a long time and then like you pick it up after a few months you'll find it died even though you weren't using it it's cuz there's a little bit of drain on lithium ion cells which is part of the of the of the cell protection circuitry so again keeping it charged makes it happier hmm. wow that's really good information thank you I'm going to um, plug in everything. <laughs> yeah, so like I, your laptop, I, you should leave your laptop plugged in when it's in, on the desk. Yes, hmm. yes, and and what will happen is sometimes the the laptop battery management circuitry or actually the software will say, you know, we need to do a couple charge cycles to 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 recalibrate our battery meter, and that's an explicit sort of reconditioning process that the, that the laptop will take you through. Normally, you leave it plugged in, and the circuitry itself st deliberately stops using the AC power, takes the battery all the way down, brings it all the way up, takes it all the way down, brings it all the way up. And that allows the, the metering circuitry to see how what the lifetime is in order to then properly guess what percentage of fullness the batteries are at any given time but that'll you know that you'll generally get a pop up that says hey we need to do some some reconditioning so you know leave your laptop plugged in overnight and we'll take care of it for you good to know this is very useful thank you yeah so um I just did want to mention that a lot of our readers are picking up on Honor Harrington. And I wanted to encourage <laughs> It's people. time. Wait a minute. I should get a sounder. No, do, no. Do, do, do. I, it's time for the Honor Harrington update. Do, do, do. I just, I'm, just, I'm going to keep this very short because I, I, a couple grump, a gr a grumpy people said, okay, you need a sci-fi podcast. There is one, this. but uh, okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to encourage people to send me feedback. I would love to hear what people think either way. So... Put it in your, in your you know, grc.com slash feedback and put Honor Harrington feedback or Honor Harrington whatever in the subject line so it'll catch my eye because um, I would love to know what, what people are thinking. Yeah, I uh, remember I was going to uh, try it and uh, report back to you. And right. uh, I have downloaded, I downloaded the uh, Audible version and it was horrible. The reader Ooh. on the Audible version is the worst. Oh, so I uh, I started and it was just uh, just my opinion and maybe others like it I don't know but I just I was very disappointed so I, I and I didn't go very far so maybe it got better but I just didn't want to spoil it right it was just the pro I didn't even finish the prologue I just a page and I'm thinking this woman is the worst so uh, then I downloaded the nice thing is you can down now I felt I've already bought the book because I bought it on Audible so I I felt like well now I can download the free version which I did and put it on my Kindle. And it formats quite nicely on the Kindle when you download the free yes. version. So uh, I did that, and I'm reading on the Kindle. But I, but that that put me back a little bit. So I've only read the first chapter. I like it so far. It's a little, it's a little bit of a pot boiler for me. But uh, I like it all right. I think Peter F. Hamilton's a better writer. 
Oh well, no, I, no one's better than Peter. Yeah, I mean he's a great writer. I, he's top of the top of the food chain. Yeah, yeah, and I will go on Audible uh, and rate that as a as a poor performance because you can rate the performance as well as the book. So after I read Good. the book, I'll rate the book highly and I'll rate the performance low. <laughs> well, so we will like to know what you. think. I will let you know. Yep. Um, I tweeted about a strange article that I encountered on Gizmodo when I was doing some research for the HTC attacks. I was looking at Gizmodo's page because they had some good coverage of it. And there's other, you know, like other top red stories caught my eye. And this was, and I, this was one about claiming that the big problem, Leo, yes. the big problem. The big problem. With interstellar space travel. <laughs> yes. Was the difficulty of having sex in space. <laughs> That's the big problem. That's I think, is problem. it difficult or more fun? I don't know. I think the jury's still out. Nothing I have ever tweeted before. <laughs> <laughs> what did you tweet? Generated so <laughs> much reply. <laughs> and many of them clever. Like, well, they're just not doing it right. That's right. You're holding it wrong. Or the yes. end, you know, give the engineers some time. They'll figure it out. You know, there have always been rumors much denied, but that both the Russian and the yeah. U.S. space programs have uh, experimented with that because for that very reason, because, uh, you know, that's a human, important human function. In five years, travel to Venus or whatever, you don't, you know, uh, and um, but the Americans hotly deny it. The Russians, not so much. What do you mean hotly? Well, anyway. <laughs> no, the, um, the Ameri NASA says absolutely not. I tell you, the spacesuits make it a real problem, though. Well, but in the um, shuttle, you know, and if you're or, or, uh, the ISS, oh, you, you could do it in the I, ISS. I, and I, I would, not to get too, uh, too randy How here, many miles high club does that make but, you? That <laughs> makes you pretty high. Way out there. But I would think, and I may be wrong, maybe I've read too much science fiction, but uh, weightlessness would make, uh, would make it interesting, to say the least. Oh, I mean, and... Peter F. Hamilton has a lot of sex in space. Anyone who's read enough science fiction knows that we have solved this problem. <laughs> this is actually this was this was you know you know we need to deal with faster than light travel. We don't need to worry about how to have intercourse with zero gravity. Yeah. And some people said have and and this was quoted. This was a serious biologist in a university well, legitimate. who That's was a real very concerned about this problem. And I'm thinking, boy, she doesn't get out very much because there's definitely going to be a way to solve that. So anyway, I just I want to thank everyone who, who tweeted, got a kick out of my 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 tweet and sent their comments back. Because now, now, on a waterbed, forget it. But uh, space, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I did want to mention that, it's, in my opinion, it took four generations, but Amazon has perfected the Kindle. Oh, I agree. You got the you got oh. the little one, the basic. Oh, there is. It is done. Isn't it, isn't it sweet? Oh. Just the right is, size now. Yes, it is cute, and it, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's done. It is perfected. It, you know, again, it took them four shots, but boy, it's, they're, they're done now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just completely happy. It's yeah. just, it's a spectacular little device. And for $79, come on. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I just hope they do really well with it. I think there's no doubt they will. And I actually, I can't wait to get a fire. I know you ordered one as well. Did the touch Ooh. hasn't arrived yet, has it? No, and no. Not, and that's actually a little bit later than the fire oh, was expected to. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I did want to share an anonymous note from somebody who had uh, some feedback about Spinrite, you know, my bread and butter product. He said, I've been a user of Spinrite through its many versions, and it has saved me from complete disaster more than a few times. Months ago, 
I upgraded to Spinrite 6.0, the current version, even though I didn't have an immediate need for it. But this morning, my normally problem-free laptop wouldn't boot. It just went into the BIOS setup over and over. So I booted and ran Spinrite 6.0 from the CD. It immediately found and fixed a defective sector at the beginning of the drive. I then rebooted normally, and everything was fine. Thanks again, Steve. Spinrite has saved me many, many times what I oh many, many times what I've spent over the years. It's no doubt the single most valuable disk utility in existence. So I wish I had Yay. his name to thank him, but he sent it no, no, anonymously. So Yay. thank you, Mr. Anonymous Person. <laughs> Yay. Happy Anonymous Person. Thank you. Yeah. We're going to get to uh, the beast in just a moment. <laughs> Here they come. The, Stand back. The beauty of beast. <laughs> the beauty of the beast. But before we do that, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, Carbonite and backup. And, of course, uh, I shouldn't have to say anything about backup at all to this audience. I mean, if anybody understands backup, it's you guys. Um, you know, if you ever want um, to tell family and friends about backup, there is a really great site. My friend Peter Krogh is a photographer. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to do the ad in a second. <laughs> this is going somewhere. Um, but he has he created a website called DPS. I'm going to say DP Best Flow. It's a terrible name for the site. DPBestFlow.org. Uh, it was a site he created with the Association, or I'm sorry, the American Society of Media Photographers and the Library of Congress. And it's for photographers, ostensibly. About it's a, it's a workflow thing, best practices and so forth. But, of course, one of the key best practices for photographers and anybody with data is backup. So he's got an article on here. He's, Peter wrote the book, uh, the Digital Asset Management book, the DAM book. And so there is, if you go to this website, dpbestflow.org, a very good, and for this audience, I think a, an excellent, thought-provoking article on what is a good backup? What do you need? And one of the things he talks about in here, and I've mentioned this before, I think, is the three-two-one rule, which I really like, and I know you agree with, Steve. He says the simplest way to remember how to backup your images safely, and remember this could be anything you want to keep, is to use the 3 to one rule. We recommend keeping three copies of any important file. Three copies. That would be probably, in most cases, the primary, the original, and two backups. We recommend having the files on two different media types, such as hard drive and optical media, to protect against different types of hazards. There's a footnote here talking about the various reasons, you know, you, you don't want to have it on just one kind of media. And then finally, one copy should be stored off-site or at least offline. While 3-2-1 storage is the ideal arrangement, it's not always possible. Uh, a second media type, for instance, is impractical for many people. Uh, in some cases, people do make do with hard drive-only copies. Best practice still requires three copies and physical separation between the copies. Look, I'll, I'll tell you how to do this easy. Couldn't be easier. Carbonite. For two reasons. First of all, Carbonite's automatic. He doesn't mention this. He does later on. If you have to remember to back up, if you have to push a button to back up, you won't. And in fact, you will inevitably have forgotten to push the button the day before the disaster happens, the hard drive fails, you know, the thieves come in and steal everything. You will have forgotten. So any good backup has to just happen all the time. Carbonite does. Whenever you're online, it's backing up, just kind of continuously trickling your data up to the Internet. Pre-egress encryption, P 
P or pre-internet encryption, PI, depending on your point of view. <laughs> Absolutely. You control the keys. Uh, the uh, data is sent via SSL as well, even if you don't encrypt. So, And the reason they do that is because you're on the internet sometimes at, at a coffee shop or an open access spot. You don't have to worry. It will continue to back up at all times. Really good for a laptop where you're moving around a lot. Laptops get lost. They get stolen. They break. Uh, unlimited backup, $59 a year for whatever's on your internal drive. You can't just kind of stack up a lot of external drives and do it. But anything on your internal drive. And it's Mac or PC. They're, they have updated it to go with Lion. They did a couple of weeks ago, and it's really great with Lion. Uh, it, this is just a great solution. Carbonite, C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E dot com. If you uh, go there right now, you can try it for two weeks. And I always say try it first because it does depend on your Internet connection. Some people don't have enough bandwidth to make this uh, sensible or they have too much data. If you have terabytes of data that you want to back up, just do the math. Uh, you know, divide the terabytes of data by your upstream bandwidth and you'll see it's just not doable. So this is worth trying before you, you buy. Usually the first two weeks are enough to back, do a complete backup of your data. And, and that's free. Then if you sign up, and if you do that, by the way, use the offer code security now, if you would. And then if you sign up, use security now again, and you will get 14 months for that $59. 14 months of the price of 12. Uh, this is just a great way to back up. Um, it is per machine. They do have a pro version, a business version. If you have to do a lot of machines, you can check that out the same place. Use the same security uh, now offer code. Um, but if it's just if, but for single machines, for laptops particularly, uh, this is great. I put it on all my laptops. It's, it's it's cloud storage too. I didn't mention this. You you can log into your account from any computer or your smartphone or your tablet, and the data is there and accessible as well. So all that data is always available to you. So if you've been using Dropbox or something like that to get data onto different machines, this works just the same. It doesn't do the syncing, but the data is always available to you. You control whether it's on your machine or not. Carbonite.com. Use the offer code SecurityNow, and we thank them uh, for their support of the Security Now program. Okay, Steve Arino, what the heck is Beast? So the story begins... A decade ago, um, I checked some dates, and the Transport Layer Security, TLS, which is the evolution from the so-called SSL, Secure Sockets Layer, its RFC 2246 is dated January of 1999. So what's that? That's 12 years ago. Um, the next generation the the point update to it tls version 1.1 has an rfc of 4346 versus 2246 so whoa 1200 rfcs later of course you know the internet's been going crazy since then so lots of publications but it's dated april 06 in in drilling down to find out where this first where this problem first occurred to someone, I found some email dated 2001, so fully a decade ago. And in some of the documentation at OpenSSL.org, so that the open source version of the Secure Sockets layer and Transport Layer Security, TLS, um, 
which was and that document I found was last dated '04, but was originally um, written earlier. Said, "Quote: There are some problems with the CBC-based cipher suites in SSL 3.0, which was the last version of SSL, and TLS 1.0, which was the first version, obviously of." TLS, and they're actually the same suite. They basically renamed, they made a tiny changes to SSL 3.0, nothing substantial, and basically renamed it because they liked TLS 1.0 better. That can be exploited by active adversaries under specific circumstances. So that, of course, says nothing about the problem, but there was lots of, of analysis of the problem at the time and it was one of the major fixes in TLS 1.0, which then abandoned SSL completely. SSL is no longer moving past 3.0, where it stopped, where it died essentially, and was taken over by TLS, which is the same thing, just under a different name. So one of the things they fixed with that updated RFC, but essentially... This has been a problem that's been known for 10 years, appeared in TLS 1.1. Now, the problem is that there was never any pressure on anyone, really, to adopt TLS 1.1, let alone 1.2, which is the currently available version. The standard exists. Um, It's even in... Windows 7 and Microsoft Server 2008, and it's disabled. It's in OpenSSL, and it's disabled. That is, these later versions, because there have been some some compatibility problems, with uh, notably with IE6 that, that had some trouble with it. So because there was no like urgent need to move off of 1.0, no one has. Well, that changed happily when a couple very clever security researchers, Giuliano Rizzo and Tai Duong, settled down to figure out how to make this thing happen. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, they, they talked about it at Black Hat. At Black Hat. They demonstrated at the Eco Party Security Conference in Buenos Aires. And... And I'm going to talk about the attack in detail in a minute. But I first, I think what's really interesting and educational is to understand how this happens. How do a couple sharp guys who kind of get a, an itch about maybe there's something here, how do they like nail it down to something that actually works. So in in Thai Duong's blog on Beast, September 25th, that's so that's the Sunday before last, he writes, So we gave a talk and a live demo at Eco Party last week to show how Beast exploits a weakness in SSL to decrypt secret cookies. Please note that Beast does not do any harm to remote servers. In fact, no packet from Beast has ever been sent to any servers. We chose PayPal because they do everything right 
when it comes to server-side SSL. And that is and and that is good to demonstrate the power of Beast, which is a client-side SSL attack. We reported the vulnerability to browser, plugin, and SSL vendors several months ago. So these guys were being very responsible. Current version, and, and English is not this guy's first language. So I'm going I'm to read this as he wrote it because it's kind of quaint and, and they have a sense of humor, which, which comes through too, which I like. Current version of Beast consists of JavaScript slash applet agents and a network sniffer. And actually, it's more than that. It's, it's a full-on man in the middle that needs to be able to not only sniff but block and intercept and alter network traffic. But we'll get to that in a second. We have some choices for the agent. At the time we reported the bug to vendors, HTML5 WebSockets could be used to build a beast agent. And now that's significant because all modern browsers support HTML5 with WebSockets. So that meant that just native technology in browsers would work. But due to unrelated, unrelated reasons, the WebSockets protocol was already in the process of changing, this is a few months ago, in a way that stopped it. We can't use the new WebSockets protocol shipped with browsers. We use a Java applet in this video, but please be aware that it may be possible to implement a JavaScript agent with XML HTTP request as well. Now that's the whole, that, 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 that's the part of JavaScript where the browser is making queries back to the server in order to do all kinds of fancy on-the-fly things. So that is, this XML HTTP request is a, is a technology also built into contemporary browsers. So he says, be aware that it may be possible to implement a JavaScript agent, meaning that doesn't need Java also, a Java applet, with XML HTTP request as well. And he says, why don't you take a look? Note that it is relatively easy to run a script or an applet in your browser without you doing anything. For example, by intercepting any HTTP requests from your browser. That is, have, like the man in the middle could intercept the request and then return content that would cause your browser to invoke a, a Java applet from somewhere. So, and that, and that somewhere is another problem because we have the, the whole... Um, uh, the whole uh, same origin policy that prevents things from coming from places other than than where we're surfing. So they say, um, no, uh, he, so he writes, it's relatively easy to run a script or an applet in your browser without you doing anything by intercepting any HTTP requests from your browser. After all, each agent is just a piece of JavaScript or an applet. Once an agent has been loaded, Beast can patiently wait until you sign in to some valuable websites to steal your accounts. Now, that's significant because some of the advice I've seen, for example, some of the stuff that Microsoft has been advising people who are worried about this is close all of the other tabs on your browser and then log in over HTTPS with, to a secure site and you're going to be safe against beasts. So what they're saying is that 
some other tab could have been compromised. And because this is not running, even though it's not running in your current tab, Beast running on that other tab in cahoots with this network sniffer man in the middle could perform the attack, which is true. So, and, and again, one of the things that I'm sure our listeners are going to take away from this is <laughs> this is not something to worry about a lot. I mean, this is a very sophisticated proof of concept. The good news is it's gotten everybody's attention and we're going to close this problem before it ends up being escalated into a serious attack. So he continues, in order to make the Java applet agent work, we have to bypass the same origin policy, which is to say that's that has to get bypassed too because they've got to load the Java applet from somewhere that won't be the site you're visiting because, you know, PayPal isn't going to send you this malware Java. It's going to be, it's going to come from a server that these guys provide. And we already know that the same origin policy in all of our browsers, which is avidly supported because it prevents so many exploits, that's going to stand in in the way of this thing happening too. So they said, some people have gotten the impression that Beast required an SOP bypass bug to work. And so it's not a threat by itself. That's not true. It's well known that even with same origin poly, same origin policy bypass in Java, you cannot read existing cookies. But you can send requests and may read responses, which actually is part of what their beast system does, which he says may include new cookies. But no, you cannot read existing cookies. In the video and the live demo as well, we show clearly that we decrypt existing cookies that were already stored in the browser's cookie jar. During our research, we indeed found a, and here's, this is key, during our research, we indeed found a Java same origin policy bypass. We wanted to focus on more important parts of Beast, such as the actual crypto attack and optimizations. So we stopped looking for alternatives and used the same origin policy vulnerability that we had found for our purposes to make an agent. So that's really significant and interesting too. So here are some guys who say, okay, in order to do this, we need to be able to load malicious Java from somewhere else. So let's, you know, Java doesn't, Java's designed to prevent that. The browser's designed to prevent that, but we need that. So they just do. That is like there just happens to be one when they go looking for it um, that exactly suits their purposes. Um, so, so that's sort of a summary. He, then he says it began, this search of theirs, with the alleged backdoor in OpenBSD's IPsec stack. And Leo, you'll remember we, we covered that and talked about it like, what, a year ago or so. He says, one day in late December 2010, Giuliano sent me an email telling me that he got a new idea. He was at some beach in Indonesia reading TLS-CBC. Oh, that's just sad. (laughs) And then, and then, 
Um, he says, I know that beach. And TLS and CBC should not appear in the same sentence as the beach. I, I agree. But, well, maybe Giuliano's not very interested in bikinis. Actually, later we learn that John Giuliano was interested in bikinis because he's not making much progress on the beach. <laughs> and, and so he says, and he came up with a... With the chosen boundary attack, which I'll ex- get to at the end of this, the chosen boundary attack on TLS-CBC, which is the TLS protocol when you're using the CBC cipher. TLS, and, and our listeners who remember, we did a whole podcast on how, how SSL works. You'll remember that the, the browser in its initial SSL handshake sends a list of the of the of all the different cipher suites that it supports up to the server and from among them the server chooses whichever one it wants in order for them to agree on something that they both know about so not all of these cipher suites use cbc many of them use rc4 now rc4 got a bad rap because that's what WEP used, and it was the misuse of RC4, which is a just a fine cipher, but it was misused in WEP, which meant that some keys that users might use were weak, and essentially that was one of the ways in. But RC4, when used properly, as it's used by SSL and even TLS properly, is perfectly secure. And so one of the things Microsoft has suggested is that webmasters could change the order of preference of cipher suites used by SSL and TLS to, so that RC4 suites are chosen before CBC, and that also completely solves this problem. And everybody supports RC4. Google has actually been doing this for a long time. They didn't move to CBC, so they've never had a problem. So um, he says, so um, Giuliano on the beach reading this this technical document when he wasn't being distracted by the bikinis came up with the chosen boundary attack, which I'll explain at the end. In hindsight, it's obvious that somebody would think of that when they read about Dai's attack, Dai is a, is a previous security re- researcher who laid some of the, found, the fundamentals of this. In hindsight, however, everything is obvious, which of course is true. It takes somebody like Giuliano to have such a good idea. I am so lucky that he always shares his ideas with me. I wrote some test cases using the wonderful TLS Lite library. And after some hours... My conclusion was, it can't work in browsers. I then moved to the States and was busy with new life, new job, and schooling. So I didn't have time to research that idea any further, even after Giuliano kept asking me to check it again. And this guy says, I love this. Don't listen to me. If I tell you your attack can't work, and he has a smiley face, don't listen to anybody telling you that. Fast forward to early April 2011. I was working on some projects at Matasano, 
And some SSL code that I saw that day made me realize that I wrote wrong tests for Giuliano's idea. In fact, it seemed that I didn't quite understand it back then. As soon as I got back home that night, I reread Giuliano's email from December, my notes and scripts. I decided that I needed to make it work with pen and paper first, so I drew some diagrams. The result looked hopeful. I then modified the test cases and reran them, and for the first time, I saw that chosen boundary attack may work. That moment was so wonderful. It turns out <laughs> that I had to reverse the idea to make it compatible with browsers. And after some more hours, not only I saw that the attack is possible, but I also understood which conditions I need to make it really work. The conditions looked easy, too. I was very excited. I would have screamed loudly, ha, ha, ha. I took note of what I had seen so far and sent it to Giuliano. At first, Giuliano didn't understand my note because it's a reverse of his idea. But he caught up very quickly and he agreed that it looks doable. So the main condition is to be able to send two SSL records in the same cookie-bearing request. If you've read the leak draft, we may call this the blockwise privilege. And I'll explain what that is also. We were both very excited because at that moment we knew, actually he says we know, that it is just a matter of browser features for us to create a reliable exploit for something that people have thought unexploitable in years. I collect a list of browser features and plugins that allow me to send cookie-bearing requests. I, so now they've got the, the fundamental concept. They've, they've figured out, okay, this kind of looks like we can make this happen. So now it's time to convert it to code. He says, I took a look at the browser security handbook by Mikhail Zalewski, who we've also talked about and mentioned many times in the past, and found some candidates, JavaScript's XML HTTP request that we talked about, Java URL connection, Flash URL request, and Silverlight's web client API. We really wanted to make the attack work with just native JavaScript. So we spent a lot of time on XML HTTP request object. At some point, Giuliano and I were even reading C++ source code of various browsers, friends, which is even harder to understand than assembly, as a, friend, as a friend once said. Maybe we've missed something really obvious, but we've never made XML HTTP request work the way we need. It was both surprising and frustrating that it is so hard to do request streaming in modern browsers. People have to invent a lot of ugly, and he says bitches, I think, I'm not sure, maybe hatches, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that known as comet techniques. I studied every single one of them, but none of them meets what we need. I also studied HTML5 WebSockets, then concluded that's not what I need because it includes a zero zero, a null byte, in front of every packet. More about WebSockets in a moment. 
So I moved on to Java URL connection. So that's an API in Java that allows outbound connections to be made. He says, I had never written an applet before. but So he'd never written a Java applet before. <laughs> he briefly refers to learning Java here in a second. He says, but researching is doing exactly things that you haven't done before. So I wrote an applet and tried to make it perform the blockwise step. The internet is really helpful. I found a wonderful URL connection mini guide at Stack Overflow. I also wrote a small SSL server to test my applet. It worked as expected. I could open a request, append more data to it as long as I want, and that's a key as we'll see in a second, and each time I flushed the output stream, Java would send out a record in the same SSL connection. So wonderful, but I want more. I want something that works without any plugins. Once again, I started writing tests. So, so, so he's got something using Java that, and the idea is he's able to send out multiple HTTP requests or HTTPS requests, actually, over the same connection. Thus, he calls that streaming. And these are, these are requests from Java out to a remote server. But, as we'll see, they don't make it. They get intercepted by this man in the middle. So, we, but, so now he's got Java, but he wants to refine it. He really wants to just use JavaScript because it would just make it a better attack. So he says, I want more. I want something that works without any plugins. Once again, I started writing tests for XML HTTP request, which is just the Java, which is the Java command or API for doing the same sort of thing, for JavaScript being able to reach out and, and query remote servers, generally using XML, but you really can be anything you want. So he says, reading more C++ code and studying Comet. And he says, rinse and repeat. Nothing worked. One day, one day, while in the shower, I realized that those things haven't worked simply because they can't work. That's why people have to invent WebSockets. Hmm. Why couldn't I use WebSockets? I reread my note. So they have a, and he has a slash X00, which is, you know, C notation for a null byte prefix which prevents me from fully controlling the chosen block I want to send. I remembered that Bel Air et al. also had the same problem when they tried to attack SSH, so I reread their paper. I was quite disappointed to know that they didn't describe any practical way to solve that problem. Then I came up with the idea of chaining of predictable he says IVs, and that's initialization vectors that we'll talk about in a second. I wrote a small WebSocket simulator to test it, and it works. Not very fast, though, since WebSockets requires that my chosen block to be a valid UTF-8 string. It's funny that we also had to deal with UTF-8 in the ASP.NET exploit. Anyway, it doesn't need any plugins. It was late April. We split the work. I wanted to work on the paper, and Giuliano wanted to work on the exploit. I started writing the paper right away, but Giuliano had to delay the exploit several months later. He got a name for it anyway. Quote, This thing is so complicated, I would like to call it Beast. 
So people kind of get stuck calling it the beast attack. We can figure out what beast means later, he wrote. Writing in English has never been easy for both of us. It took us several months with a lot of help from friends to finish the ASP.net paper. And I couldn't believe that I had to write. That's not this one. Not, that, that, that's the work that they were known for before, um, about a year ago. And I couldn't believe that I now had to write another one even before releasing that one. But I did eventually. Along the way, I found Bard's papers, which was extremely helpful for me. I read his paper carefully. So many we believe, he has in quotes. We believe this, we believe that. I have to confess that I am a non-believer. So I made a rule for myself. No, we believe in my paper. Anyway, although Bard's attacks can't work, his papers were written in very nice English. So I stole a lot of phrases, expressions, and statements. I believe he did. (laughs) Of course, I cited him many times, too. So I kept writing, and Giuliano helped with editing. But by mid-May, we finally had something good enough to ask for a review from friends. I guess that no, we believe, is a good rule, since everybody said that the paper is easy to understand. We also got an all I don't know who his friends are, but boy, they're, they're, <laughs> they're postgraduate cryptographers. Because I've read the paper, too, and it's like, well, there's no we, we believes in it, but there <laughs> sure is some serious... Uh, woo, some serious crypto. I love it. We also got an awesome review from Kenny Patterson. If you happen to write a crypto paper and need some cryptographer to review it, you may want to ask Kenny. He's very friendly, encouraging, and his review always teaches us a lot. So we got a not so bad paper, but still no actual exploit because Giuliano was still in some beach somewhere. We agreed. I guess he found the bikinis. I think the bikinis actually were a distraction. We agreed that he should contact browser and SSL vendors early so they can work on the patch, since we planned to, but didn't, release something in July. We sent the paper to Google, Mozilla, Apple, Microsoft, Opera, and Oracle. All of them responded very quickly, which is very impressing. Mozilla created bug 665814. And it became the discussion board for all people working on the fix within the industry. Later, I discovered there were also people from IETF and other vendors who we didn't contact. It turns out that fixing this is not easy because every proposed solution is incompatible with some existing SSL applications. OpenSSL has already included a fix several years ago. But it is turned off by default, thanks to Internet Explorer 6's broken SSL implementation. And we remember how many IE6s are still out there, like half of them. Microsoft just can't seem to kill that thing. Somebody also pointed out that due to another attack released in March, the WebSockets protocol was already in the process of changing in such a way that stopped our attack. So that forced them to go back to Java. People kept asking for a working proof of concept, but we could not give them anything because we didn't have it yet. At some point, it seemed that no vendor wanted to patch this. We also started losing interest in convincing them. We got more compliments from cryptographers as we got more compliments from from the cryptographers we contacted. 
We didn't release anything in July as planned since nothing has been fixed. Meaning that the patches for the problem didn't exist then because vendors were kind of wandering off. Instead, we went to Black Hat. I can't understand why. Yeah, well, you know, it's like because the problem has been known for a decade. And these are the first two guys who are claiming they can make it work. Uh. But... So, but, you know, there's a lot of that going on in the background that we never hear about. And so the vendors are like, well, okay, what do you want us to do? Anything we try breaks stuff. And so there was, you know, there was counter change tension from the fact that no one could figure out how to fix this without breaking things. So they won a pony, you know, the PWNIE at Black Hat for their ASP.NET bug, delivered a presentation on the attack at Matasano's private dinner. That is on this attack. People liked it. We got several follow-up emails and an invitation to present it again at some internal conference of a client. Giuliano and some friends rooted all servers (laughs) and yet lost their CTF game. Still no actually beast. Quote, we can work together on Beast while I visit you next week, unquote. That must have been Giuliano writing. But we ended up drinking all nights. So many high five, he writes. Then Giuliano submitted the talk to Echo Party. Opera patched. We got excited. That was five weeks ago. Giuliano told me that the talk got a 10 out of 10 rating from all the judges. And he felt that it's time to give birth to Beast. Since WebSockets is not a good option anymore and there was so little time to research other alternatives, we agreed that we should focus on Java and Silverlight. He worked and worked and worked. It turns out that Beast is not easy to code. At some point, Giuliano had to install Windows and Visual Studio. Oh, dear. I know. Horrors. To (laughs) To write a Silverlight applet in. Cough, cough vb.net well he has to do things he's never done before too beast finally decrypted the first bite of some cookies so it is not so surreal to wit so it is oh i'm sorry so he's so he says it is so surreal to witness some idea that exists only in your mind actually evolves into working code Moments like this are very rewarding, and it makes researching very worth doing. Giuliano was so tired, so I asked him to send the code to me. This is why we've enjoyed doing things together. We can make progress as long as there is at least one guy up. He has done the heavy work. Now it's my turn to babysit Beast. I installed Eclipse, learned Java, and started hacking the code. Since Giuliano stopped as soon as Beast decrypts the first byte, I had to fix bugs to make it decrypt more bytes more reliably. The next thing I did was to find a way to bypass the same origin policy with some agent. A friend was so generous that he gave me one of his Java zero days to bypass same origin policy. So there again, they're, they're out there. And so he says he asks one of his hacker friends, hey, do you happen to have a zero day? Something <laughs> no one has ever seen before that will bypass Java's zero day. And the friend says, oh, yeah, hold on a second. I'll email it to you. 
<sighs> anyway, that bug, he says, that bug that his friend provided has a dependency that we couldn't satisfy. So I had to find another one. I started reviewing JVM's source code, okay, the source to the Java virtual machine. Honestly, I didn't expect to find a same origin policy bypass, but I did. What do you know? What Look the, at the source code. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> What's interesting is that the bug is very good for Beast, but not so good for other types of attackers. You need to be able to do man in the middle to use it. But that's what they needed. So it worked perfectly for them. Well, that makes sense when you know that I found the bug when I was man in the middling a Java applet. I could look for ways to create an agent, but both of us agreed that we should focus on optimizations. I needed to make Beast fast. The version that Giuliano sent me was so slow that all we got were expired cookies. I love that. The version that Giuliano sent me was so slow that by the time they managed to decrypt it, the cookie the had expired. They were gone. They couldn't all use them. All we got were expired cookies. And then he writes, Beast is just a baby. Aww. It deserves fresh cookies. Yes. I spent the last week or so working on that. As you see in the demo, Beast now takes only minutes to decrypt very long, unexpired cookies. In summary, we had an idea, and we've done several things we've never done before to make it work. That's our story of penetrating crypto. Thank you for your time. Oh, wow. So, really neat. Now, okay, I've promised a whole bunch of things, and we're, but we're running short of time. Um, but that's kind of okay, because... This is not a postgraduate course in cryptography, and that's really what we get down to. What I will explain is that CBC, that you've heard me, that acronym, cipher block chaining, that's a means for using a cipher like AES in practice. The problem with a block cipher as opposed to a stream cipher. A stream cipher, like RC4, simply generates a pseudo-random stream of noise, of absolutely unpredictable noise. And we know, those of us who those, those listeners who've been listening for a long time, although I'm constantly reminded that people are still just discovering the podcast or only recently discovering it from our the, the things that we see in, in our Q&As, if you, if you mix a pseudo-random noise stream with data, that by mix I mean XOR, individual bits from the pseudo-random stream with data, what you get is a different pseudo-random noise stream. And it is absolutely secure because you've mixed noise with your real file. If you then send that somewhere and the recipient can regenerate the same random, that same pseudo-random noise stream and mix that with the encrypted data out drops the original unmixed plain text. So that's the way a stream cipher works. That's all you need to do. A block cipher encrypts, as we know, 
blocks at a time. In the case of modern block ciphers, they use a 128-bit block length. Older ones use 64 bits. The problem is there aren't that many possible combinations of, quote, just, unquote, 64 bits. So it's th those block ciphers are not considered secure enough for, like, long way into the future. AES is 128 bits, and even though the bit length is only twice as long, it's, whoa. I mean, you're going up 2 to the 64 times more combinations when you add that 64 bits to another 64. So the block cipher, though, it takes, it takes in the case of, of 128 bits, it takes 16 bytes at a time and, and ciphers them into a completely different 16 bytes. But the problem is if you simply took your plain text and did that for 16 bytes at a time, if you ever had the same plain text occur, then this, it would encrypt to the same ciphertext. So that presents some information leakage. And as we'll remember, uh, on the Wikipedia page, talking about um, these encryption modes, modes of encryption like CBC, they have a, they have a startling image of the, of the Linux logo where you can see, you can still see what the image is even though it's been encrypted in a non-modal simple AES cipher. You know, the, 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 the penguin bleeds through and you can see it, so it's clearly not good. So instead, what cryptographers did was invented a, like a little addition to just using a block cipher. And that is for each successive block, before enciphering that block... They take the cipher text from the previous block, that is the output from the previous encryption, and they exclusive or it, they mix it with the plain text prior to that plain text encryption, which creates the next block. Then they take that output and XOR it with the third plain text and feed that through. Well, then what about the first one? And that's the key. There, you we need something called an initialization vector, an IV, to to start this chain of of ciphering and exclusive OR operations. The mistake that was made, which was figured out a decade ago, is that there's a weakness in SSL, and that followed over into TLS 1.0. Because that chaining from one block operation to the next, it, it extends out between packets. That is to say that and in, in blocks of encryption, and in, actually it's a little more complicated because packets and blocks aren't necessarily the same thing, but AES does things in blocks and the last cipher of of the last block is used as the in iv the initialization vector of the of the first cipher of the next block in in, in, in other words in the same way that within a block we're we're chaining these together the developers 
of SSL made a mistake, tiny, subtle little crypto mistake, which are so easy to make, of of chaining that initialization vector from the end of the prior block into the next one. That gives somebody visibility into the cipher. So the way this attack works, and I'll say it just in a few seconds, I mean, I'm going to sum it up quickly, is that if you somehow manage to get malicious code into the site that you are contacting um, uh, or or you, you get malicious code into a tab essentially of the browser doesn't have to be the 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 site you're contacting but somehow you want to infect a page with SSL that invokes Java and in fact as a consequence of this Mozilla has been considering disabling Java because this particular implementation of the exploit does require Java. And so this is a rather brute force change. You know, everybody, anybody using NoScript is safe from this because, as long as you don't enable scripting because you have to have scripting in order to bring, in order for the JavaScript and the Java to work hand in hand. But you, so, so what happens then is you also need to somehow arrange to be a man in the middle. So this is still not something that, uh, you know, that could get you even if you clicked on links in email, but don't do that. Um, it, you, you, it, the attacker has to be somehow local to you and able to sniff and intercept your traffic. So what happens is with this evilness in place, you've, you've, you've gone to a bad site which installed Beast into a tab. Then it's living there. And you also have to have an attacker doing a man in the middle right, you know, as part of this. Then you open a different tab and you go to PayPal. So you will, you log into PayPal and PayPal will give you a, a session cookie, which is fresh and not expired. Then you poke around PayPal, and as you do, your browser is sending back, it's making queries, and as we know, it's sending that cookie back to to maintain your session state, to remind PayPal this is who you are and you're logged in. The sniffer, which is is sitting there on, on your connection, sees encrypted packets go by that it has no visibility into. It, it, it can know that you're going to PayPal if it like figures out what the IP is and, and does a reverse DNS, I guess. But you know, it, it has no visibility into that. But it sees something happen that's encrypted. And, it's, and it knows that if it's an HTTPS query, there will be headers in there that are encrypted that will include the session cookie. So... Now this thing comes alive. On a different tab, Beast wakes up and it begins working to decrypt that SSL packet that was on a different connection to a different location. And it's able to do so because of this mistake that was made where between SSL blocks, they're able 
with a man in the middle to see the last block of ciphertext, which they know is going to be used as the initialization vector for the beginning of the next block. But they know that before the next block is encrypted. That is, they're able to intercept and and knowing the initialization vector, they can mount a plain text attack feeding in what they want to have XORed with the initialization vector and see what the output is. And essentially, they, they've come up with a clever way of within 128 guesses, they're able to get a byte. So no more than 256, but with 128 guesses, they can get a byte. Then by changing the padding, they shift the whole message over one byte, and then they're able to decrypt the next one. And so they have a byte-wise attack, which requires malicious code in the browser, man-in-the-middle attack. Oh, and they're, this, the man-in-the-middle, the, the, this beast tab, which awakens, it's generating queries out to the... Um, it's generating queries out to the um, the man in the middle, reusing the connection which the PayPal tab had, so that it's using the same encryption. So they're able to essentially probe the encryption and decrypt that earlier packet that they captured, which they assume had the the session cookie in it. So, you know, at this point, there isn't a solution that doesn't break things. Um, the good news is this, this video that we have a link to in our show notes is really interesting to watch because you see this happen. And it's probably scarier than it ought to be because all of these requirements are sort of glossed over, but they do capture the cookie in plain text. Then they go to a different browser. They launch Firefox instead of using Safari and they launch Firefox and, and give it that cookie. And sure enough, they're magically logged into that PayPal account with ever having to actually log in. So they steal that PayPal session cookie through no fault of PayPal's at all. As they said, they use PayPal because PayPal does everything right. The problem is we, we, we've known about this for 10 years, but because nobody actually made it happen, nobody created a video like this or gave a presentation, there wasn't any hurry to fix it. So now there's pressure. The... What what needs to happen is that the the those implementations that are broken and cannot run with TLS 1.1 need to get updated and fixed, and we need to just move to TLS 1.1, and then we'll be okay. In the meantime, the browser vendors are trying different tweaks and 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 things. Microsoft has a a one of, the, of the, their little fix it buttons, which you can click on to enable it in Windows 7 and in Server 2008 because it's di- it's there, but it's disabled as it is everywhere else. And what I haven't been able to track down is the nature of the incompatibility that people report when they simply enable the higher level versions. SSL protocol is designed to allow you to negotiate whichever version you both support. So we'd like to have everybody's starting to support the latest versions and then only when they both agree 
would that be the one that we support? So maybe there's some bugs in some implementations of 1.1 such that when you actually try to use it, it doesn't work right. Anyway, I'll see if I can find out, and I may have that news next week. In any event, that's the story of the beauty of Beast. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Steve Gibson. Uh, if you want to know more about this, Steve puts show notes on his website, grc.com. We also put them on the Twit Wiki. Uh, you can also find 16 kilobit versions of uh, 16 kilobit versions of the show for the bandwidth impaired. Uh, what else? Full transcriptions. Well, Lane takes like a day to do those, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in a day, Steve will have those up there at grc.com. While you're there, check out Spinrite, world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and all the freebies that Steve offers, including password haystacks. We saw you last night with Diane Sawyer, you superstar you. Thanks to a friend of yours uh, or a friend of Twit, Bert Rudman, um, yeah. and the reporter Matt Gutman. They, uh, they did a nice piece about the B of A site being down for five days and needed a, a talking head sound bite. So, Do we have any idea guy- why that site was down for so long? Well, there's no way to prove it. Because I mean, they're not saying. A, yes, they're, they're denying that it was any kind of attack. On the other hand, what else could it be? It wasn't like it was an hour because someone tripped over a cord somewhere at Bank of America. Right. Or they updated something that, that like, broke their site. Because if that happened, they, they, they would immediately roll back to the code that was working, you know, an hour before. And it also came and went. I, when I first heard about this earlier in the week, I... I went to B of A and it was up, but then later it was down. So, I mean, it has every hallmark of this being a denial of service attack where they were bringing up a page that had links to deeper in their site. So you couldn't get to the home page, but, but Akamai was serving a page which got you around it. So, I mean, it's, it's exactly what a denial of service attack on a big, on a big website would look like, which I think it's, it is. I think they were denying any that it was any kind of attack because the public might get confused between a denial of service attack and a breach of Bank of America's, Bank of America's security, which this probably wasn't, as far as we know. Yeah, but anyway, it was fun to. I guess we'll never know. On, fun to be on World News tonight with Diane Sawyer, and I. So thanks to Bert and Matt. Good exposure. Did you talk about? Oh, I guess you didn't talk about password haystacks. No, it was it was literally, you know, you, if you blinked, you would miss me. So, <laughs> and how long did it take, a- by the way, to tape <laughs> something that uh, if you blinked, you would miss it? Well, we did a more extensive interview, but when I saw the piece air last night, I realized, you know, for the general public, you know, you were amazed when when the, uh, I did that piece with, with KTLA yeah. because you know the general is public hardcore. is really not ready for yeah, any of this. This is stuff. hardcore stuff. This is not your. Yeah. Uh, so good, good on you. That's our listeners, hardcore, hardcore crypto crypto security listeners. <laughs> glad to have them. Steve uh, will be uh, back to next week. We do the show at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC on uh, Wednesdays. And it will be a Q&A with Tom Merritt. Now, if jury, check the, you know, there is a schedule, a calendar at twit.tv. If jury duty calls, we'll reschedule. As so, soon as I know anything, I will I will tweet and I will let your staff know so that we can update the calendar and Tom and I can find an alternative way. The podcast must go through, Leo. <laughs> GRC.com, the website, but the uh, Twitter handle is at SGGRC. So that's easy to remember. Yep. And if anyone wants to check on uh, all of the tweets that were resulted from the sex in space problem... <laughs> 
Do uh, did did you come up with a solution just out of curiosity? Uh, I'd love to try, Leo. I'd, I'd... <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Steve Gibson. Thank you Thanks, all for Leo. being here. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Security Now.